The world is wild and wonderful. There's so much yet to know. So here we are with questions. It's a what in the Sam Hill show. We've done the math. We've read the books. We've searched through archives. Oh, we're nerds and we're letting our freak flag fly. Letting it fly. Oh, we're nerds and we're letting our freak flag fly. Hello and welcome to the first ever podcast episode for the What in the Sam Hill podcast. Uh, I'm your host Erin and this podcast is going to be the intersection of nerdy and woo. I really want to dig into the nerdy stuff behind those creepy collies, behind the legends. Um, and understand why these myths exist and um, how these affect our perception of reality. Um, So today we're going to be talking about the Nephilim and I want to give a disclaimer really quick before we get started. There's actually a paper that I would have loved to have read um, entitled As the Days of Noah, a Critical Examination of the Sons of God and the Nephilim in Genesis 6, 1-4 by R. Corby. And I don't know if it could have shown a different light on this episode or not. Um, Unfortunately, I was not able to find it. It seems that Villanova University has an unrelated paper by a different author as the PDF link for um, R. Corby's article. But I'd still really love to read that article for my own edification. So if you happen to know R. Corby or someone at Villanova even, please help a girl out. Um, I'm always excited to learn and and learn more. So um, thank you in advance. All right. So today we're going to be talking about the Nephilim. Uh, If you don't know, the Nephilim are uh, a legendary race of giants, um, or as understood by most people, the Nephilim are a legendary race of giants that um, come come from the Bible, and they were the children of angels or or rather fallen angels demons that mated with humans um that is one of the theories but it is kind of how it's kind of built up as this legend not necessarily in religious scholarly circles but in i'll say alternative thinker circles conspiracy theory circles etc um but we're going to discuss all of the theories today, or most of the theories, uh, to be fair. I don't know that I did an exhaustive search, but I tried very diff- very hard to find everything I could. Um, anyway, so let's get started by actually reading the Bible verses that these come from. It's only two verses in the entire Bible, which is part of why there's so many uh, possibilities, because it's not something that's discussed quite frequently, and it is pretty ambiguous. So, um we're going to read these passages, and I will say that this comes from the um, New American Standard version, so uh, if you want to read along, um, that is the version that I chose, although I did look at um, all the different versions as a cross-comparison, but I find the New American Standard's pretty accurate as far as um, as meaning and in etymology, and so um, that's what I've just chosen to reference here, but uh, really whatever you have on hand, unless it's the 
like new international version is probably good enough. Um, or at least it'll get you the drift. Anyway, um, so first passage is Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And it says, Now it came about when mankind began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of mankind, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Um, and then note here also that in Greek and Roman mythology, where the sons of God and daughters of man mated to breed the mighty men of renown, we would call these demigods. Um, so that you may hear me use that terminology. Um, but this includes like Heracles, a.k.a. Hercules, uh, Perseus, etc., etc., um, where we've got where we've got a god, or um, maybe not not one of of the Olympians, but still still a, a minor god mating with a human, um, and so yes, that's that is a, a demigod in Greek and Roman mythology, and actually that that concept features across the mythologies of many many different cultures um also sidebar fun fact did you know that in the writing style of the 19th century etc was abbreviated not like we do today where it's etc period but it was an ampersand c period and i'm not sure when that changed but i actually really enjoy the ampersand version because it makes it clear that there is an and and etc because et means and in latin so it kind of makes it clear that it's two words um unfortunately i'm not entirely sure that everyone knows that today i don't have a ton of faith in the modern education system but anyway that's neither here nor there um so the second biblical passage is uh, is numbers thirteen thirty-three, and it says we also saw the Nephilim there. The sons of Anak were part of the Nephilim. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Um, or I'm sorry, I said, I said the sons of Anak were part, but it's actually the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. Um, and then translations of the word Nephilim, depending on which version you're looking at or um, which biblical scholar you're you're reading, you're going to see fallen ones, um, wondrous ones, and uh, the most common one that's uh, used, it came from the Septuagint version of the Bible and then has gone out from other to other various versions, is giants. Um, and then the sons of Anak are mentioned a couple other places in the Bible, but each time they're referenced as a race of giants or people of great stature. So from the passage in Numbers, we clearly see that the Nephilim are 
a race of giants, but we don't get much else. So, um, I mean, my first question is, are they just extra large humans? For example, the average Maasai warrior is um, about six foot three, and the average pygmy is about four foot three. So they're both Homo sapiens, they both live on the African continent, and yet the Maasai is like one and a half times taller than the pygmy. Um, so are the Nephilim just extra large humans like that? Or are the Nephilim something else? Um, and then the passage in, in Genesis is really even more ambiguous. And that's kind of where the theories come into play. So um, from from these two passages, I have the following list of questions. Are the Nephilim large humans? Or are they another species? Are the Nephilim the product of the sons of God mating with the daughters of man? Or are they just present in the same time frame? And I'll say my initial reading of this is that the Nephilim are contemporaries of the demigods and not equivalent. Because it says that the Nephilim were present when the sons of God took the daughters of mankind as wives. And they were also present when the daughters of man bore the children of the sons of God. Which tells me that they pre-existed the demigods. Um, but I am open to arguments on that because it could also be that at first the sons of God took the daughters of man as wives to create the Nephilim. And then after God, as punishment, reduced the lifespan to 120 years, that the sons of God just used the daughters of man as breeders, but didn't actually marry them. Um, that's, you know, one alternative reading that I came up with. And then the final question is what is meant by the sons of God and the daughters of man? Um, because there's a lot of different interpretations of, of what that could mean. So first I want to look at an article um, by Rabbi Schubert Sparrow. And just FYI, I am going to include pretty much everything I look at as far as uh, articles, either scholarly journals or um, news articles. Um, I'm going to try to include all of that in the show notes so that if you have any questions that you can reference the material as well. Um, and I use, I don't have any special memberships, to, you know, to anything. So I'm using articles, scholarly articles that you should have access to as well. Um, if you have access issues, um, let me know, but it should all be in the show notes and it should all be accessible. So anyway, um, in 2012, in Jewish Bible Quarterly, Rabbi Schubert, Schubert Sparrow published an article entitled Sons of God, Daughters of Men. Um, and it, he outlines first the questions that he has about the Nephilim mass passage, similar to what I've done. Um, and then he discusses the prevailing theories in Jewish thought and then discusses his own theory. Um, and then one question that he brought up that I didn't was that Per his reading, there seemed to be an element of surprise when the daughters of man bore children, which I did not get in my initial reading, but I do see his point. Um, and that's one thing about the passage is that because it's ambiguous, it's hard to read objectively without allowing your preconceived notions to color your interpretation. So you can kind of read it in any way you want. Um, but I will say that the the biblical author clearly separates the taking of the daughters of men as wives 
and the daughters of men bearing children as two separate issues, even though in typical life, getting married and making babies tend to go hand in hand. Um, so what is it about the getting married and the having babies in this instance that is different? Is it like I proposed earlier where um, the babies were had in both instances, but the difference was that the sons of God stopped taking the daughters of men as wives? Or is it like Rabbi Sparrow proposes that they were surprised by the making of babies and that's why it's distinctly separated from the getting married in the passage, as in when they were thinking about or when they were initially getting married, they were not expecting it to be a fruitful union, let's say, um, and then they were able to have children unexpectedly. Um, but Rabbi Sparrow then lists the prevailing theories of who the sons of God, um, also known in Hebrew as the Benai Elohim, were. And this list was initially compiled by Rabbi David Svi Hoffman in um, something he published, and then Rabbi Sparrow recreated it here, um, I'm assuming to a pretty accurate degree, but I don't, act I haven't actually read Rabbi David's um, or Rabbi Hoffman's work. The first theory is that the sons of God were angels, and I think this is most people's instinct on reading first reading that passage because um, we are operating from a Christian paradigm pretty much in in at least in America, um, but pretty much the Western you know culture. Uh, so when you're operating from that Christian paradigm, I think you certainly tend to think of the divinity of Jesus when you hear sons of God. And so our mind goes to um, divine beings such as angels when we hear that. Um, a second theory is that the sons of God were descendants of Seth because Seth was made more in the image and likeness of God than Adam's other children. And that's something that I don't, uh, I don't know that that's like, you know, the case that's, that's something that's been read into the Bible based on the description of Seth and, um, it's, it seemed, it was, uh, it's more like, uh, commendable language. They speak more highly of Seth than they do of Adam's other children. And so it seems that he may have been a more divine, um, divine human in his representation, possibly. Um, and both the Matthew Henry commentary and the critical and explanatory commentary of the Bible agree with this theory. They indicate that the sons of God marrying the daughters of men was the chosen descendants of Seth marrying the lesser lineages. And the giants were not large men, but just the most important and ferocious men of the age. Pardon me while I take a sip of my uh, Lady Grey. I actually really enjoy Lady Grey tea. I wasn't sure that I would because, um, because I was a little, a little bit skeptical of Earl Grey to begin with. Um, anyway, just like without sugar and Lady Grey is actually more citrusy than Earl Grey. And so I was expecting to not enjoy it as much. Um, 
I'm just not a person that typically mis mixes citrus with other flavors. For example, I really hate the chocolate covered oranges or the chocolate orange flavored chocolate is essentially what it is. Um, but I really love Lady Grey tea. Anyway, that's totally an aside. <laughs> Getting back to this. Um, so another theory is that the sons of God were just elites, general elites, um, not necessarily of any specific lineage. And then another theory is that the sons of God were descendants of Cain, which would be obviously the less savory son of Adam, um, notable for his murder. <laughs> um, and then the final theory listed by, um, by Rabbi Hoffman via Rabbi Sparrow is that um, the sons of God were the Nephilim. Sparrow, and I assume... Hoffman indicate that the Nephilim were the demigods and heroes of mythology. Um, in my readings of the Genesis 6 passage, passage, I immediately jumped to the idea that it was uh, the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men that were the demigods. But now that I've seen this analysis of Sparrow, I'm questioning my reading of it because the Nephilim were the subject of the sentence before those were the men of old. Um, so if we go back to the passage, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of the God, when the sons of God came into the daughters of mankind and they bore children to them. So that sentence is about the Nephilim and the sons of God mating with the daughters of mankind is like an uh, well I, I i cannot remember like my fifth grade grammar lessons to know which part of speech this is but it's it's basically an aside right the the sentence is technically about the nephilim not the sons of god and the daughters of mankind or their children so the sentence the second sentence is those were the mighty men of old, men of renown, and it makes sense that that would actually not be referencing the children of um, the sons of God and the daughters of mankind. It makes sense that that would then be referencing back to the Nephilim because it's the same subject. I, I could see how my brain would immediately jump to the sons of God and the daughters of mankind being the mighty men uh, or their their children being the mighty men of old, the men of renown, because of my previous knowledge of Greek and Roman mythology, where I knew that the, the, the demigods were the heroes in basically all of the myths, right? So that's, an, that's a way that I, my brain jumped ahead to assume, assume something that may not be the case. Um, you know, that's basically a grammatical difference there. And I don't have any training in ancient Hebrew. I'm assuming that the two rabbis would almost certainly have more training in ancient Hebrew than myself because I don't have any. Um, and so I have to at least consider that this, that's the correct understanding. Um, and it's certainly, you know, since they're listing it as a prevailing theory in Jewish scholarship, I would assume that there are plenty of people that that make this case based on the, the ancient Hebrew. So that's something to consider. In which case, the children of the sons of God and daughters of man 
don't have to be extraordinary at all. They don't have to be demigods or giants or anything other than human um, because they're just an aside in that sentence structure. Um, but kind of that doesn't really make sense, though, because as Rabbi Sparrow says, God flooding the whole world because he's appalled at the depravity of humans makes far more sense if they're interbreeding with another species rather than just breeding with another nation of humans. Because if we're to assume that the children of the sons of God and daughters of man are normal humans, then it's kind of like, so the holy elites start marrying the peasants and God's like, okay, well you messed up. Now you can only live 120 years. And the elites are like, okay, so now we're just going to breed the peasants without marrying them. And God's like, burn it to the ground. It just, I don't know. It seems excessive to me. And also it seems like if that's the justification for a world ending flood, that that could have happened multiple times. Um, over and over again uh, and seems like the world should have been redestroyed several times since um, but especially you know you consider the sexual revolution that we've just gone through in kind of the last century I feel like God would be uh, you know reevaluating re that same same uh, mindset again if that was just that was the the justification um, Rabbi Sparrow's own theory, then, is different from those listed by Rabbi Hoffman. Rabbi Sparrow suggests that the Nephilim are the children of the sons of God and the daughters of man, um, but that the gods are humans, the sons of God are humans, and the daughters of man are Neanderthals. The surprise being that the humans thought the Neanderthal women were hot but didn't think they would be able to crossbreed. And the large size of the Nephilim, the giantism, would be caused by the combination of the genes. Now, I will say that the large size does seem to align with what we know from genetics based on what we can observe in ligers and tigans. Ligers are crossbreeds from a male of a smaller species, the lion, with a female of the larger species, the tiger, and they are larger than both lions and tigers. Tigans are crossbreeds from a male of the larger species, tiger, with a female of the smaller species, lion. And they're only roughly the size of the smaller species, the lion. So to extrapolate that with the human Neanderthal situation, we have humans, the smaller species, and Neanderthals, the larger species. Technically speaking, Neanderthals were smaller than the mo current modern humans, but modern humans 200 years ago, much less, you know, 20,000 years ago or even 2,000 years ago, were also smaller than the current modern humans. Um, Neanderthals certainly had a more robust skeletal structure, as in like their bones were physically thicker. So even if they weren't taller than humans, they still would have been more physically formidable as far as what they could endure. But I don't buy this notion. Oh, and also by physically more f f physically formidable, if they've got larger bones, one would assume that you've got bigger muscles because the your muscle your your bone structure. So you've got this like play back and forth, right? So you're b physically having thicker bones 
would be a disadvantage if um, just from a sheer weight perspective, right? Because it causes you to weigh more, which from an agility perspective would be a problem. But if you've got significantly larger muscles, then you need those thicker bones so that your muscles in, you know, from their um, action don't break your bone in half, right? So what by the Neanderthals having a thicker bone, a more robust bone structure, we can assume that they had much larger muscles also because for them to have that larger bone structure, that means that their muscle would break our bones. If it was, if their larger muscle was attached to our smaller bone, it would do damage. So the Neanderthals then had to be, um, much stronger also even if they weren't necessarily taller um but i don't i also don't buy this notion going around i saw in different like almost science memes i guess is how you could describe it diagrams whatever um that neanderthals weren't larger than humans at the time but in any case they were they were definitely stronger and actually ironically had larger brains. But um, anyway, a male Neanderthal and a female human would then, based on this analysis, create children of really no extraordinary size. And these offspring offspring would likely blend in with humans. Um, particularly because there's this assumption that Neanderthals were covered in hair and that and that's not necessarily the case we don't know that to be the case because we don't understand what creates that gene to have hair everywhere I mean we can analyze people that have um hypertrichosis or, or whatever it's called where it's basically werewolf syndrome um but not actual lycanthropy obviously it's it's where it's a genetic condition where the um, person has hair all over their body just um, based on a mutation we can analyze those people we really don't still don't understand what would cause that and we can't extrapolate that to neanderthals so you know, people have these representations of neanderthals that have them as these huge hairy beasts but we don't know that to be the case we don't know that they didn't look very very similar to um, to humans at the time uh, so we've got the male Neanderthal and the female human creating children that would essentially blend in with the humans. And then a male human, son of God, and female Neanderthal, daughter of man, on the other hand, they could create offspring larger and stronger than the Neanderthals. Um, one issue I see offhand with this theory is that if God destroyed the world in the flood because humans mated with Neanderthals, then he didn't do a very good job because supposedly all humans on earth today have a portion of neanderthal dna uh but then again to play devil devil's advocate against myself i also haven't seen definitive proof that neanderthal dna and human dna are so distinct as to outright prove that we are such and such percent neanderthal even though you will see those figures out there um if humans and chimps are supposed to be 99 to share 99 percent of our dna and we don't even look similar how much of our dna overlaps with other hominids 
that also assumes that the skeletons used to map the Neanderthal genome were even Neanderthal. Um, Our understandings of other hominid species and the interbreeding between those species is changing at such a rapid pace that I'm not sure we can discount anything. And then also, I mean, even in the human genome, we really don't understand what everything means right now. So, like, for example, just eye color has, like, 17 different loci in your DNA that are are at least partially responsible for your eye color. And we can kind of understand, like, for example, we know that blue is more recessive than brown, um, etc. But, you know, there's people with violet eyes. Uh, We don't understand what makes some people's eyes more gray and some people more blue. Um... Hazel is still not understood, even though there's actually more people with hazel eyes than there are with green eyes. So there's so much that we don't even understand about physical traits that we see in ourselves that I just don't trust our ability to look at ancient relict and extinct hominids and understand what's going on there in their DNA. But... It is interesting to look at and can provide some clues, so we will continue. Um, Right now, scientists do believe that a, quote, substantial number of ancestral human men were having sex with female Neanderthals, and that's based on the DNA evidence, apparently. So what they looked at was the Y chromosomes of Neanderthals that they tested. Um, Again, I mean, just offhand sample size is an issue they're testing like three skeletons because that's all they have i get that that's all they have but if they tested three humans and uh tried to make a study they'd be laughed out of the building so there's certainly a difference you know in testing actual living humans and um doing archaeological and paleontological studies uh just based on history anyway So the Y chromosomes that they looked at in those Neanderthals looked closer to modern humans than to Denisovans, even though supposedly Neanderthals were more closely related to the Denisovans. And so this indicated to the scientists that more Neanderthals were getting their Y chromosomes from their human daddies. Um... And then there's also some evidence indicating that human women and Neanderthal men interbred based on mitochondrial DNA, but it it seems from the evidence that more human men and Neanderthal women were getting it on, and that corresponds to what we see in the biblical passage and Rabbi Sparrow's interpretation. Um, Also, if the Nephilim hybrids were killed in the flood, were the Nephilim then in number, in the book of Numbers, actually Nephilim? Or was the Nephilim used as a metaphor in that passage to indicate the size of the sons of Anak? That's another question I have, a follow-up question, and I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that we would ever find that out. Um, Because there's, you know... Then you have to get into what was the flood, and that could take hours uh, to do that justice because the flood flood myth is seen in so many different cultures. Um, So next I want to look at Ralph Ellis. And Ralph is um, kind of an alternative researcher. He has done really cool work in 
um, in the biblical space from an alternative perspective. Um, so he's got this book called Eden in Egypt and he discusses the Nephilim. It actually, the whole book is a discussion of, or a reanalysis of the book of Genesis. And so he does have this section on the Nephilim, um, on pages 141 to 145, which I have in the show notes. And note here that these are scans of my personal physical copy of Eden in Egypt, which is used. So the highlighting that you see is not my own. It's not correlated to what I'm about to talk to you talk about. And it gives me anxiety because I am no longer in high school and I don't believe that you should be scarring your lovely uh, books because I put books on a weird pedestal and have kind of an old book fetish. It's fine. It's totally normal. It's actually completely nerdy, but if it wasn't nerdy, you wouldn't be here. Anyway, so if you don't know Ralph Ellis, he he's known in the conspiracy and alternative, alternative thought community for his work in reanalyzing biblical evidence from an independent perspective. Um, and a lot of it, well, so it starts with, he actually proves in his initial work that the Jews were the... Hyksos pharaohs of lower Egypt before the exodus, not slaves. And it's a point that is corroborated by Josephus, the really famous first century Jewish historian. Um, and then from there, that opens up his work, or really a, a retranslation of the Bible from a, an Egyptian perspective. And and so I haven't read all of Ralph's work so far, but I'm really impressed by the research he does and what I have read. Um, but I'll say this, if you are going to read Ralph, you need to have a pretty open perspective. If you are a very Christian person um, or a very Jewish person who who takes this uh, the biblical narrative very seriously and and it's a, a really important pers- part of who you are and how you identify as a person, I, I would honestly just say skip ahead. Don't read Ralph. You don't need to pay attention to this necessarily I'm not here to come for your religion or to scandalize you or make you angry (laughs) um it's uh, it's not worth it right but it but if you want to listen to another perspective it's not necessarily even one you have to agree with or to incorporate into your own viewpoint but if you want to hear something new then um, then let's take a look. So I want to kind of just read along um, with his excerpt from the book and, and comment, or the excerpt from his book, and, and comment as we go. So um, to start, I'm going to kind of skip ahead and, and skip over some passages, but I've got some highlighted passages in a printout, not in my book, because I'm a normal human being. Anyway, uh, so he says, The Nephilim, plural, are being translated as being giants, but the context of their appearance looks highly contrived. The general thrust of the passage, and all those that lie around it, is of young maidens and their procreation with the gods. So why do we suddenly see giants roaming the earth? 
the giants don't appear to be reference to the references to the gods themselves so where do they fit into this story um again uh i agree i totally think that it is kind of odd for them to be thrown in there and i think that's why it's actually so confusing are the nephilim the product of the sons of god and daughters of men i don't think they are as noted before i think they were contemporaries not equivalents but it's an odd reference to make um if the nephilims are, are just these ra random giants right because you well and in even in the in the larger context right so you've got the generations of noah then you've got this Genesis 6, 1 through 4 passage, and then you have the flood and, and Noah's involvement in the flood myth. So even the passage as a whole is kind of, is really kind of shifted like randomly in there. And, and you kind of have to shift from history to whatever this is to more history. So not only, so you've got the Nephilim reference inside of the, the passage about the young maidens or the sons of God and daughters of man, AKA young maidens. So you've got the Nephilim inside that passage and then you've got that passage inside of the larger history. So there, it's a lot of random randomness, it seems like. And it's almost like way to bury the lead, biblical scribes, right? Um, it actually reminds me of a podcast episode that I just listened to recently. And it's an episode of The Political Orphanage with Andrew Heaton, who, by the way, should definitely do voiceover for sarcastic nature documentaries. I, w I would buy that in a heartbeat. Anyway, Andrew had on his buddy Jeff Moore, who's also a comedian, and they were discussing the new Dave Chappelle special. And one story that Jeff told... Uh, was how he used to have a joke in his act in which he referenced both black kids and dumb kids, um, two separate groups. He was not calling the black kids dumb, but because he had put them too close together in the joke, people's brain made an equivalency where there was none. And I kind of think that's what hap what's happened here. People have been assuming that the Nephilim, translated as giants, were the products of these sons of God and daughters of men because they're too close together in the narrative. Um, clearly there's some sort of correlation because why else would you insert the reference? And, and I think that's, you know, that's why it's in there and that's why it's right next to it, but it's too close and there's not enough explanatory words in between. And so people have been assuming that they're the same thing and reading it as the same thing. But to me, it, it's pretty clear that they're not the same thing. Um, or at least I don't think they are. I could be wrong. I'm open to that possibility. Anyway, let's continue. The answer, I believe, lies in a gross mistranslation of the word nephil or nefer. The word is supposed to have been derived from nephel, nefer, a Hebrew word meaning lie down, prostrate, or even miscarriage and abortion with the first of these meanings we are presumably supposed to imagine that these these giants knocking down their opponents an image that is not at all that convincing but what of the other derivations what of abortion for instance where does this meaning fit into the imagery of a fierce giant frankly all this seems highly unsatisfactory 
and after a long examination of the alternatives, the most likely derivation of this word seems to be from the Egyptian neferti, meaning young maiden, youth, or even virgin. So I'll start with a thing to remember with Ralph. As I said before, is that he's already shown that the Jews were the Hyksos pharaohs. Um, and so that's understood in this analysis. And that automatically and immediately takes this passage out of the Levant and puts it in Egypt, um, which opens up the, it, the etymology to translation for via the Egyptian language and also opens up the interpretation to being understood in the context of the Egyptian religion. Um, and that, I mean, to my mind, immediately triggers a different idea with the sons of God, right? Because Egypt, just like so many other cultures, uh, more, most recently in that I can think of would be, um, the emperor of Japan prior to the defeat in World War II, as they understood the Pharaoh in Egypt and, and thus his entire family to be divine, he was a bodily representation of God. Um, honestly, in a very similar way to how we think of Jesus in the Christian context being God, they understood Pharaoh to be a, a physical being, but also God. Um, at the very least, a, a a derivation of God, a divine being, if not a God himself. So, um, all of a sudden, instead of sons of God being understand as being like understood as angelic beings, they are, I mean, I'm thinking they're the very human, but in the Egyptian minds, obviously divine Pharaoh and, and, also any children of the pharaoh would be giants of social status and men of great renown so that kind of fits into that narrative right um another thing that i want to uh mention here is that i was skeptical of the miscarriage and abortion i was like how is that even related right but i i went into the etymology and yeah it's it's right there i mean it is it's it's definitely uh, a related word so um i was surprised but there's there's a point there um I, I, yeah i i was not i was a little confused on that but he is correct so uh that is important to note um and then later, uh, skipping kind of, you know, a couple pages down, the final pieces of the jigsaw, which demonstrate that the Nephil, Nefer, were actually young maidens, is to be found in verses from Deuteronomy, which state that that also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelt therein in old time, and the Ammonites call them Zamzimims. Here we can actually see two more versions of the names used for these giants. The final sentence in the verse above informs us that the Ammonites lost my page. 
the worshippers of Amun, Amun um, in Thebes called the giants Zamzam. And as it happens, this word is also derived from the Egyptian. The biblical Z is often translated from an Egyptian, we'll say TCH, because I'm not sure that I could really under, uh, pronounce that correctly. We'll say CH, I guess. Um, and so the translation has been taken this time from Cham, Sam, meaning young maiden, young soldier, or even copulate. Words that have much the same meaning as an affair. The final version of the name is the alternative term being used for giant, which this time comes from rafa, meaning tall or giant. This word was derived from the Egyptian rapa or rapieti, meaning young person, young maiden, or princess. And here we see why these young maidens or prostitutes were being translated as giants. As was explained in the, his, uh, this is Ralph's other, one of other books, uh, Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. The role of God's wife or virgin was extremely prestigious. And so the lady in question was often one of the high ranking women in Egypt. More often than, she, than not, she was the Pharaoh's elder and she would eventually, according to the ancient tradition, become his chief wife. Thus the term repiati does not necessarily refer to any young maiden, but it more often than not refers to a lady of very high rank or princess. So I guess I actually skipped over kind of an important point in there, um, which is actually that there were these very specific young maidens, these virgins, um, who in the Egyptian culture, who were the priestesses of Atum, um, which is... Uh, I don't know how to say this in a PG version. Um, they would uh, please a statue of of a tomb in in the temple, um, but not with their downstairs with their hands. Uh, <laughs> so they were technically virgins, but also it was you know, is still a very sexualized thing as was common in um, basically all religions ever or at least the all ancient religions um, anyway, so they've got this role of this high priestess essentially um, and so that's what he was discussing here, I will say the Ammonites, um, I was not able to find a good verification in my mind as to him uh, saying it was Amun in the worshippers of Amun all I mean I'm sure he, I or I know for a fact that he has discussed it in other works of his but I do like to independently verify I will say that Ammonites as in the fossil is absolutely named for Amun um, because Plato named the Ammonite fossils for uh, for the god Amun, even though he was Greek and Amun is Egyptian. But, I mean, if you know anything about the history of the time, the Greeks and the Egyptians were very intertwined culturally, um, not only because of trade, but um, also that Greeks just had this, like, Greeks and then Romans 
had this habit of taking other people's pantheons and applying to it to their own and creating these like melded god forms so it's not really weird for plato to be discussing egyptian gods instead of his own because the greeks and romans really understood them as kind of one and the same um it you know it, it comes from this idea that there's truth and or there is this one universal divine truth and that all people's mythologies are a representation of that and so you can find these archetypes and divine truths through um in in all cultures and you can just kind of see where they apply to each other and and quite frankly it, it's not an idea that i'm i'm not you know that i'm against i actually i i pref i enjoy studying comparative mythology because of that because i believe that there is truth um across all cultures and so i do enjoy you know myself um comparing and contrasting and and seeing where they meld together anyway my point was to say that plato named ammonites for the god amun because he, um, the god amun was uh, associated with a ram and the you know the very round curling ammonite shell looks like a ram's horn and so that's where that name derives from and so it's not unreasonable to think that ammonites the people in the bible would also have been named for the god amun but i don't have a specific um verification of that pause another tea break i'm not used to talking this much i uh <laughs> i'm an engineer in real life which means that i mostly just click things on a computer screen and don't talk to people those are two very important parts of my life anyway so um that is that verification and then to get back to the the raphi raphaim i want to look at some various uh or some other uh bible verses and these are ones that reference the son of anak and you'll see some cor uh, correlation here so uh, Deuteronomy 1 20, 28 says where oh and that other verse that he was referencing that um, had the Ammonites and the Zamzumines that's Deuteronomy 2.20 just FYI uh, so anyway looking at Deuteronomy 1.28 where can we go up our brothers have made our hearts melt by saying the people are bigger and taller than we the cities are large and fortified up to heaven and besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there. And then Deuteronomy 2, 10 and 11 says, The Emim lived there previously, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they too are regarded as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Amim. Um, and notations to the to that verse indicate that the Rephaim were actually um and that would correspond to the Repa, Repayati, Rafa that uh that Ralph Ellis um discussed in in that last passage we read but anyway the Rephaim were supposedly a group of peoples um subnations that were all quite tall is what the commentaries say 
And then Deuteronomy 9, 1 and 2. Hear Israel, you are crossing the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Cities that are great and fortified to heaven, a people who are great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand against the sons of Anak? Um, and so then the last little uh, part that I want to read from Ralph is just is just kind of wrapping it all up in Christian terms the only virgin was Mary and to have had similar versions virgins peppered all over the Old Testament story filling the same role as mothers of great men would have debased the myths that were being created about the events in Galilee by necessity these great women from ancient history had to have their identity and roles covered up and so they became known instead as Nephilim giants, a term that eventually fostered its own brand of mythology. So basically what Ralph is saying here is that we've got this role um, in the Egyptian religion where you have this high priestess, virgin priestess of the pharaohic family that is the high, highest priestess of the god form um, in the god the statue of god in the temple and then later rises to the role of chief wife of the pharaoh to give birth to to then move from servicing the god statue to servicing the god form of the pharaoh and thereby creating these um, future generations um, of the, of the Faroe family. And that would be on generation, on generation, on generation. So you've got this repeated role of, um, pardon the blasphemy here, but you have a virgin mating with God to create the sons of God, the men of great renown. So Ralph is saying that, you know, it's his his interpretation and impression based on his research that this change in verbiage from virgins to giants um, is to hide essentially these these virgin stories these pre from the previous culture, so that the Virgin Mary is so important and so prominent and worth basing your entire religion on, right? Um, I don't know that that's a justification for the Jews also understanding it as giants, but um, I, you know, I, again, it's a pretty ambiguous passage. It's certainly something that uh, has caused issues um, and, and various interpretations, you know, anyway. And then also, I think that if you're not looking at the Egyptian, which, uh, most Jews and Christians are not going to be as far as their etymology is concerned, you're going to have this word to fall and you're going to have to have to try to explain that. And, and that's going to be difficult if you're not looking at this Egyptian 
um, perspective. Um, you've got to figure out what fall means, the fallen ones. You come up with fallen ones, and then where do you go from there, right? Um, so uh, that is a complication, um, and and so that's something that he has to explain. Pause for tea break. And we're back. So hopefully for you, absolutely no time has passed at all because I've figured out how to do these, uh, put parts and pieces together in the podcast, which, oh man, do I sound old. I'm 30. I'm so old. Anyway, (laughs) um, to me, like five minutes have passed because I found out that I can only record like an hour at a time. Again, boomer talk. Uh, Anyway, to get back into where we were, Ralph, you know, has this theory about these virgins. Um, Honestly, uh, at this point, I probably should, I'm feeling like I should have done more research about this this religious role. Um, But, you know, when I was doing research on this, I actually got super into the etymology and kind of got blinders on as to other things and I mean how long are you going to take this you know does it actually matter to me as far as finding out if the you know what the Nephilim are as to whether or not this exact religious practice in Egypt was accurate is an accurate representation of what was done Eh, probably not but the nerd in me always wants to know all of the things all of the time Uh, also in Impossible Quest but one can only dream. Anyway, so um, getting back into the etymology, I, I kind of went into a few different angles here. So first, and, and this I'll struggle a little bit to uh, describe these things just because I, um, well, I don't speak Hebrew, nor do I, I read these letters. I, I did not go to Jewish school or Hebrew school, whatever it is that all my Jewish friends went to uh, after elementary school to get to their bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and all that. Um, I did not go to that. I, I'm not Jewish. I don't read Hebrew. So I'm kind of have to work around to describe what these things are. Um, but anyway, so first we've got the word for um, Nephilim, and uh, that is giant, and it and it mentions that it's only in the Bible occurring in the plural, so we don't really we don't really have a singular of it, and it's of uncertain origin, perhaps a derivative of the word to fall, or related to um, miscarriage, and. In a way, miscarriage does make sense if you think of, uh, or it makes sense as it relates to fall, just because a miscarriage is in some ways a fallen pregnancy, right? Like, it didn't work out. So, um, that kind of makes sense, but I will say, uh, to reference, you know, I will reference back to this later, um, either way, you've got a negative connotation there both falling and miscarriage or abortion would be a negative connotation. Um, and then for the word anak, 
We've got a name of an ancient people of giants who dwelled near Hebron and in Philistia before the Israelites conquered Canaan. This is the only meaning of the word in the Bible. Um, again, that's open to interpretation if you're understanding the Bible in a different context, such as Egypt. Um, but whatever. The second meaning is giant. And again, it says of uncertain origin. Some scholars connect it with uh, some word meaning neck and render it by long-necked, i.e. tall man. Um, I will get back to that in a second, but still long-necked seems like a stretch for tall because uh, honestly, it just it makes me think of Daddy Long-Neck and if you know who that person First of all, my husband would love that I'm referencing this. If you know who Daddy Longnecks is, like, wow. Uh, that's definitely not a biblical image, but it just seems like Longnecked is a really weird adjective. Uh, but anyway, then, so we've got Rephaim, and again, name of an extinct race of giants, pre-Israelite, dwellers of the land of Canaan, Again, of uncertain etymology, possibly originally identical with this other word, which was later regarded as denoting extinct giant peoples. Um, and then I also saw a word that I, when I was looking for, when I like control F giant in this etymology document, um, but it, it's, and again, I don't know what the word is, but the meanings are one, mighty, courageous, valiant, heroic, two, warrior, hero, three, central character in a novel or drama. Um, but really what by, they mean by that is hero. And then it could also be translated as omnipotent, giant, colossus, tyrant. So you've got this correlation between words that mean giant and mean other things like hero or heroic hero courageous valiant tyrant etc so that's important to note and and then another thing i noted as i was going through there is they have there are other words in the hebrew language i know you're shocked to know this that they have other words um, but no, they have other words for physically tall, but instead the word that's used for the sons of Anak and the Nephilim, um, to dis to describe, to describe them as tall is, is actually a word where elsewhere in the Bible, except where it is, there's like four places that it's referencing these giant peoples everywhere else. It's translated as lifted, raised, great exalted it doesn't mean physically tall in other places so why did they use that word instead of a word that actually means physically tall um that tells me that that's a mistranslation i'm i'm not you know i'm reading into it sure but yeah that's what that tells me um and then getting back to the neck thing the long necked um, there's, I found an article by Abraham Tall, which goes into some of the etymology and it mentioned, and uh, that article was just over my head. Again, I don't read Hebrew, 
So there's just these bunch of these words that I have no idea. It's like if I was trying to read Russian, literally. Like, I don't understand your alphabet. Anyway, one thing that it mentions, though, is that the medieval scholars understood the neck reference to mean those beings were rulers because they were adorned with many necklaces. So even... Um, even here with the sons of a neck, first of all, the word for tall is supposed to, is actually possibly great or exalted. And then the word a neck is a ruler that is adorned with many necklaces, not some weird long necked tall man. Um, so based on all of this etymology, I, I don't see where we have giants at all. Um, I, I see that we're looking at rulers, we're looking at great men, um, greater and mightier, but great exalted, uh, long necked with, or whatever, with their many adorned necklaces, but not physical giants. So, I mean, just looking at this etymology, that, that Ralph, honest, that his argument really put me on, um, I'm 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 pretty much out on on this idea of actual physical giants. But then to keep going, I want to look at the Book of Mormon. Why? You may be questioning why if you know anything about Mormonism and Christianity, they don't necessarily see eye to eye. Um but if you didn't know, which I didn't until recently, the fo- the first book in the Book of Mormon and the most common name in the Book of Mormon is Nephi. So this is important because you've got a word that is incredibly similar to Nephilim and you've got a completely separate set of scholars with a completely different bias. And when you've got different groups with different biases, you can use them to cross-reference material to find more objective truth where it may be difficult to trust the objectivity if you were to just look at one of those groups. So, um, you can kind of, you know, cross-reference and, and see, it's like with the 3D glasses where you've got one side that's just blue, and if you just look through the blue side, it doesn't make sense, and you've got the other side that's just red, and if you just look through the red side, that doesn't make sense. But if you put them together, all of a sudden now you're getting this 3D image that gives you so much more depth in your information. That's actually a really good analogy and I'm surprised that I came up with it, but there you go. So according to a 1992 article by John D. No, Freudian slip. Um, I will eventually cover John D one of the most fascinating people ever and I want to know more um if you don't know he was the kind of uh court astrologer for Queen Elizabeth the first um but anyway that is another episode for another day today we are talking about the Nephilim and according to a 1992 article by John Gee in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, the name Nephi is a Syro-Palestinian Semitic form of the Egyptian word Nefer. 
um, notably common in Egyptian names. I'm assuming it's pronounced Nefer. Uh, the way that he is writing, he is removing the vowels that other people tend to put into the words. But if you know anything about the um, Semitic languages, he, you know, Hebrew, Egyptian, etc., there are no vowels. Um, you're looking at just consonants and people read the vowels in as they're speaking, but if they're not written down and notably, that's how you get, uh, both Yahweh and Jehovah, um, two very different pronunciations for the same word in, um, in Hebrew, because you get the, t the tetragrammaton, which again, I don't know the Hebrew letters, but in English, you would read it as Y H W H. And we don't know the vowels, um, that were actually used for that word because, um, the tetragrammaton is the name of God. And so the Hebrews considered it so holy that they did not speak the name. And so over time, the actual pronunciation of the word got lost. Um, and so people have tried to recreate the name. And so like, for example, Jehovah, what they did is they took the vowels from the word Adonai, which is another name for God, and they applied those vowels to the tetragrammaton and you got Jehovah or Yehovah um, because the Y and the J are actually the same letter in a way. Anyway, what really is the J's didn't exist at the time, but it doesn't make it's so Jesus is actually Jesus. But anyway, then Yahweh is, is a different set of vowels applied to the same letters. Um, in my opinion, for what it's worth, I think the actual pronunciation would be closer to Yahweh. And the reason I think that is actually because we've got the word Jove for um, the god Jupiter in the Roman pantheon. And uh, it was just kind of a nickname for for Jupiter. It's where you would get the word jovial, etc. Um, in, in English. But anyway, Jove, as it would have been pronounced in classical Latin would have been um, pronounced very similar to Yahweh. It would have, because the J would be a Y and the V would be a W because those letters were the same thing back then. So it would be, um, and it wouldn't be a silent E. It would be, uh, it would be spoken out loud. So it would end up being like, Y-A-W-A-A. So, Obviously, it becomes very, you know, notably similar to, to Yahweh. And as I spoke about earlier, the Romans um, and the Greeks both had this tendency to um, associate their gods and their pantheons with other gods of other pantheons. And I will say that Yahweh in the Bible has the same archetype as um, Jupiter, Zeus, uh, etc. So um, it's not unreasonable to think that those two words would actually be applying to the same God archetype. And I, I haven't been able to find out in my personal research whether um, that is a word that was brought into the Latin language from the Hebrew pronunciation. Um, 
I'm not sure that anyone in the etymological resources would actually admit to that if that was the case, because it does so many things to our understanding of um, history, religion, etc. But another possibility is that the uh, both the the Hebrew word through various cultures. Um, because so even in the Hebrew they don't know where the tetragrammaton came from there's uh, speculation that it was not originally a Hebrew word and was instead brought into the language similar to how El was not a Hebrew god originally it was a Canaanite god that was brought into um, but the speculation being that it came from another language the possibility exists that both Jove and Yahweh are the same word coming from the original Proto-Indo-European and that whereas kind of independently um or that they instead of deriving one from the other they're deriving from the same original source that's another possibility anyway that's totally an aside getting back to the Nephilim we've got this Jewish or we've got this Egyptian word nefer n f r, um, but we know it from names like Egyptian names like uh, Nefertiti, and and some several others. Anyway, so then if we take that word and we go to Gardner's sign list, which is a list of common hieroglyphs from Sir Alan Gardner's 1927 book Egyptian Grammar, we see that nefer is sign f thirty five. And it means good or beautiful. And this glyph is part of the Nefertiti translation given by Ralph Ellis. So this is an independent corroboration of Ralph's work. Well, I have the question. If we see Nef Nephi as a derivative of the Egyptian word for good or beautiful, why does the supposed Hebrew etymology of Nephilim become fallen with that negative connotation that I talked about earlier. And why does exalted become tall? I mean, are they trying to hide something? Honestly, I'm kind of starting to think that they are. I didn't come into this with like, there's some grand conspiracy to hide, you know, uh, the ancient religion of the Hebrews, but or the Egyptians in the Bible. But it, it seems like it to me almost at this point. I mean, you're hiding the etymology, you're... Um, you're you're hiding the original meaning by translating as giants and and all of this other stuff but again you know it goes back to what ralph was saying about the virgins um and honestly also in the jewish tradition you know we've got this uh, this understanding of the jews as slaves and it is very difficult for people to give up their victim complex quite frankly, and I understand that the Jews have had an incredibly hard time um, throughout the course of history, modern history at the very least. Um, you know, it's very easy to scapegoat them and for, for, for many different reasons, and I don't want to discount that. And I don't want to take that away from them. But at the same time, you know, I understand that, like, well, if, if you're no longer a a slave class, a serf class, um, in Egypt and instead are Egyptian rulers, then you're not necessarily a victim throughout history. 
But honestly, I, I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if you've got these, these chosen people of God, why are they slaves in Egypt, right? Why are they not uh, a conquering people, right? That's the, that's, you know, when you think of a chosen people of God, you would, uh, you would expect Alexander the Great, um, you know, William the Conqueror, something like this, some big, like, military force, not slaves in Egypt. So, uh, you know, it, it makes, if you step outside of, of what we know and what we've been taught and all of our Judeo-Christian societal, um, kind of, ethos or a mythos I should say you could see how it would make more sense for the divine divinely selected people of God to be uh, rulers instead of slaves but I could understand why the Jewish people wouldn't necessarily want to admit that um, how it kind of detracts from from this uh, this newer concept that we have of the Jewish people. Um, and then again, I could understand why the Christians would not necessarily want to take away from the role of, of Mary by, um, by having these other, other virgins filling a similar role I mean, people freak out when, when anyone points out that the relationship between Isis or Osir uh, Osiris and um, and Horus is similar to that of the Holy Family. So I'd, I'd hate to know what they would do if you told them that, well, actually, that there's been virgins throughout the Bible the entire time and that, you know the role of Mary just kind of that mirrors that same same idea so uh that's why I said earlier that you really need to be open-minded to read Ralph because um for example you know if you if you're expecting uh like this puritanized version of the bible almost you might be kind of horrified or scandalized to read that oh actually Abraham and Sarah were siblings and that the reason that Abraham told Sarah to say that she was his sister and not his wife was because if they knew that she was his wife and also his sister they would understand that he was a pharaoh and that he was coming to the other Egypt he was coming from lower Egypt into upper Egypt um which is south, FYI, because the Nile River runs north. So Lower Egypt is actually north of Upper Egypt. Anyway, Abraham went down south into Egypt, but really he was going from Upper e or from Lower Egypt into Upper Egypt, um, on essentially kind of like a spy mission. Anyway. That would be horrifying, probably. And so, um, I understand why this stuff isn't talked about, but also it's very frustrating when you look at it and you're like, I just want to know the truth. Can anyone just tell me the truth? Can you guys stop hiding things? Um, because the, 
the reality of the world as we live in it, I don't think is something that should be uh, strictly given to like three elite people in the entire world. But it seems like that is what every single culture across the history of, of man has done is where you have these elite priestly class and only they're allowed to know the truth. You know, even in the Middle Ages, you have this elite priestly class and they're the only ones who can read that and maybe some rulers. But um, anyway, back to the, the Mormon stuff, I will say to play again a little bit of devil's advocate in Joseph Smith's translation of the passages found in the book of Mo Moses in the Pearl of Great Price. He also uses the word giants. So um, if there's a giant secret that no one's let in on, it's not the Mormons <laughs> um, or at least not about the Nephilim. But I, I'm just using their etymological resources here. And also, even though Joseph Smith was doing his own translations, he um, still had the mindset of the King James Version. That's the translation that the Mormons still use today. So he may have just not been able to step outside of that um, or may have not been attempting to. He might have been looking at other things. There's a lot to look at in the Bible. Another thing that I want to consider here is a quote from Josephus Flavius, uh, the Jewish historian I mentioned earlier. Ralph Ellis actually uses this quote to help tease out the flood myth, but I, I think it's relevant here. And it says, um, this calamity happened in the 600th year of Noah's government in the second month called by the Macedonians Dias, but by the Hebrews Marchesawan, for so they did order their year in Egypt. Josephus Flavius, Antiquities of the Jews, 180. So this is clearly saying that Noah is a leader of a government, right? And that this calamity, the flood, happened in the 600th year of Noah's government, the government led by Noah. Um, I'm not here to discuss the 600th year because the very long uh, lengths of time that we see in the early Bible are something that it, that is a whole other topic that could be gone into. And I do not, we don't have time for that. Um, but I do want to highlight this point that Noah ran a government and that it was in Egypt because uh, it references that's how they did it in Egypt. So, if we got Noah's lineage that's coming directly before our Genesis passage and Noah's flood myth that's coming immediately after our Genesis passage and Noah from this quote from Josephus is clearly an Egyptian man leading an Egyptian government. Um, again, something that independently corroborates uh, Ralph's work on, on the fact that this, we should be thinking this from an Egyptian perspective it makes so much more sense to translate Nephilim from an Egyptian etymology than if this were just some random Bible passage, right? So I, I want to keep highlighting these ways in which it's it's reasonable to think about it from an, an Egyptian perspective and not a Hebrew perspective. Um, at least, you know, etymologically in, in language and translation. Uh, also, Noah was a descendant of Seth, 
So if he was a leader of government, presumably in Egypt, a.k.a. he was an Egyptian pharaoh, we really are coalescing the earlier idea noted in the Rabbi Sparrow article that the sons of God were the descendants of Seth and then hear from Ralph that the sons of God are Egyptian pharaohs because the descendants of Seth and the pharaohs would be one and the same. Um, but while we are on the subject of Josephus's account of Noah and the flood, I want to look at an earlier verse of the same chapter. So this would be Antiquities of the Jews, um, 173. Many angels of God now went into women and had sons who proved arrogant and trusting in their own strength, despised all that was good. Our tradition says that these men acted audaciously, like those whom the Greeks called giants. Um, so this is Josephus's quote on the Nephilim, essentially, uh, or at least this this Genesis passage. And um, the famous William Whiston translation of Josephus has a footnote that says. This notion that the fallen angels were, in some sense, the fathers of the old giants was the constant opinion of antiquity. So you get this sense from William Whiston that this is just an understood consensus. So this must be the truth. Uh, but I'm not sure where he's getting that because it's not even what the text says. Um, I mean, it, cl pretty, it clearly shows that these men acted audaciously like those whom the Greeks called giants. So it says the children of angels and women acted in a similar way to the giants, which is completely different from Whiston notes. I want to know, well, I want to know why he says that, but I wanted to get into the original Greek because I want to know exactly what Josephus is saying, not um, translated through these clearly flawed eyes. So, Looking at the Greek, first thing I want to note is um, the word that is translated as angels. So this word is agelos, or perhaps pronounced angelos. This is Strong's Greek number 32, if you're looking at Strong's Concordance. And it can certainly mean angels, but a more accurate translation seems to be messenger. And that messenger can be a human. Agalos was actually used to describe the John the Baptist in the Bible, for example. So, yes, this could mean literal supernatural angels, but it could also mean messengers or mouthpieces of God, which in the Egyptian context could absolutely be Pharaoh. It could be the priesthood. Um, you know, I'm leaning towards the Pharaoh translation because as I was talking about earlier, the Pharaohs were not just this... Um, they're not just somebody appointed by God. They were literally a divine being. Um, so then moving on, we have the first word just after the colon in the Greek. Um, it's the colon is, does not show up in William Whiston's translation, but it shows up in the original Greek. And so that word, homoia, is um it's just an alternative version of homoios which is strong's greek number three six six four and it means similar or resembling um it's the greek uh greek word where we that gives us the prefix homo 
in the English language. So homonym, homosexual, homogeneity. Um, it just means same, similar, resembling, same. So this clearly identifies and defines the children of the sons of God and daughters of men as similar to the giants, but not the same, not, you know, um, so, so homo does mean same now, but it's not like, it's not like you're, you're literally the same thing like yourself. Um, it's a similar thing. Like, um, homonyms are, are they sound the same but they're but they're not the same right so they sound the same but they're spelled differently uh or vice versa i get those confused anyway so it's they're similar to the giants but they're not the same and that's something that i you know that's what i initially deduced from the original biblical passage but josephus and i are exa on the exact same page here it's similar um and then finally, we have the word for giants, and that is giganton. And, and that seems straightforward. This is the word that the Greeks used for the giants in their mythology, which, you know, is to be expected for a historian living in a Roman, but still heavily Greek culture. Um, and really, even then, you've got the Romans and the Greeks having very, very similar and codependent even mythologies I would say pantheons and mythologies um interestingly when I searched for giganton in Strong's Concordance I found that Strong's Concordance lists this as a variation of Greek number 1095 which is Jurasco I, I think close enough um, on the pronunciation, but that means to grow old. And that's where we get the term geriatric in English. And so that's something I, I really don't fully understand that as I'm kind of discussing with you today. I don't understand what that is or why, what, what that is, what the significance of that is. Um, maybe that's just another reference to greatness, maybe elder status, um, but I, I don't really know. I just found that extremely interesting that, again, we've got this word that supposedly means giant, but it's really related to this word that's not giant. Um, and then something also to note is that the giants of Greek myth aren't really necessarily large. They're more known for their strength and aggressiveness, and we've applied this lens of understanding them as like these super large beings, but is strictly from the text that's not necessarily what we see um, but again I don't think the giants are the offspring discussed so it doesn't really matter we don't have I, I don't see the correlate the the Nephilim as being the demigods as we posit uh, as was discussed earlier so um what I want to do now is I want to just kind of recap on those initial questions that uh, I was looking at or that I came up with when I was reading those biblical verses. And then I want to give you an explanation of where I stand now. Um, and I will say that that is open to future change because the more you know, um, the more you can incorporate and adopt or adapt your ideas 
to more information. But this is kind of what I've come up with through all of this research. So are the Nephilim large humans or are they another species? Uh, neither. I, I think the hu Nephilim are humans, but they're not large humans. They're just great or, um, uh, so you know, socially prominent um, and understood in a divine context, I'll say. But uh, I do, I do specifically like Ralph Ellis's young maiden interpretation. Um, I would need more information on this kind of ritual to clearly say that yes, that's exactly what is meant. But I, I think if you're looking at Nephi and you're seeing the good, beautiful translation or etymology, then you have to assume that the Nephilim would at least be seen in that context. I have no reason to believe that Nephilim and Nephi would not be translated in a very similar way, right? There's no reason to believe that's not the case. Even if those plates from Joseph Smith are a complete forgery, I would understand those to be similar in, um, in context, right? So, ooh, pardon me. Wow, I do not normally stay up this late, I will say. But um, I initially was going to try to record tomorrow morning, aka Saturday morning, but I have to help my parents move. So, we are powering through tonight and I'm almost done here anyway. So, I really like uh, Ralph Ellis's Young Maiden interpretation, but regardless, I, th I think it's pretty clear that the Nephilim are extremely important people related to the Egyptian hierarchy. I think we can see that between the Nephi and then um, in what Josephus was saying about the fact that Noah was was a leader of a government um, confirming for us that that Noah was the leader of a government um, I, I th so I, th I think we've got Nephilim being these extremely important people related to the Egyptian hierarchy, whether or not they are these priestesses, I can't say for sure, but I, I the evidence to me points clearly that the Nephilim are nothing like the legends that have built up around them. Um, so then number two, are the Nephilim the product of the sons of God mating with the daughters of man, or are they just present in the same time frame? This, I feel very confidently that the Nephilim and the offspring are not the same thing. I think the Bible has made that clear. I think Josephus has made that clear um, in their sentence structure that these are not the same. I think people have made these associations anyway just because of what I was talking about earlier where the, the two concepts are too close together in the sentence and so people's brains have been making this association where there is none. Um, definitely a relationship there because you've put these two things into a sentence and maybe that correlation is is about the Egyptian religion um, and the customs perhaps it was denoting a time you know separate from or uh, denoting a specific time in the Egyptian religion development where they were having these specific priestesses I don't know there's there's so there's a relationship there but they are not the same thing 
And then the final question is, what is meant by the sons of God and the daughters of man? Um, and that's, well, I think the, uh, the human and Neanderthal mating theory is, um, is interesting and it certainly tickles my Bigfoot bone. Um, and if those people that make Bigfoot, Bigfoot erotica got a hold of this theory, oh, I can only imagine what they would do with it. Um, but I think that there's more evidence to suggest that the sons of God taking the daughters of men as wives was the Egyptian pharaohs marrying commoners. Um, and honestly, to speculate further, I would venture that the flood coming as punishment is part of the mythos as to why the pharaohs began inbreeding so heavily. I haven't looked at the timeline to know when the or how the flood lines up with the pharaoh inbreeding. Obviously, Noah... Um, happened before Abraham and we've got Abraham marrying his sister uh, Sarah uh, just from the biblical timeline um, which I'm more familiar with than actual Egyptian history um, but it, you know it seems to me that like you know you've got these pharaohs that are seen as these literal divine beings these literal gods they marry commoners. Their offspring, while still powerful and of social import, may have been cruel people or just may not have lived up to the perfect divine being understanding. Anyway, then you get this natural disaster happened, happening that flooded the earth. Maybe volcanic incident. Um, there's definitely certain things in the historical record that can be understood from a volcanic perspective not least of which I would say would be Atlantis um, anyway the assumption was made by the people at the time that the two were related and the Pharaoh or I'm sorry I purport that the assumption was made I don't want to say that as if that was a true the statement and mislead anyone um, I am purporting that the assumption was then made that the two were related and so that the pharaohs would then decide that they needed to keep their divine bloodlines pure to protect the sanctity of the office and protect the nation from another flood. Um, you know, again, I don't have proof of this. I am speculating, but it is a hunch that I've got based on what we've seen in the evidence here. And, you know, again, like I discussed earlier, I need so many episodes to do the flood myths of the world justice. So I don't want to go further into that Pharaoh flood connection, but I did want to put it out there as um, this idea that I had looking at this evidence. Anyway, um, I will wrap it up here. Wow, almost two hours on my first ever episode. Um, but thank you guys for listening. Um, this has been really fun and I hope you enjoyed nerding out with me next week that I am hoping to look at the miracle of the sun, which was at Fatima. Um, so if you don't know, if you're not Catholic, uh, Our Lady of Fatima was a Marian apparition that has been confirmed by the Catholic church. It happened in 1917 where the um, a vision of the Virgin Mary came to three shepherd children 
uh, Lucia, Jacinta, and I cannot remember the boy's name, but it, he couldn't hear or see Mary, or he couldn't, he couldn't see Mary, but he could hear her. Jacinta could see and hear her, but she couldn't say anything, and Lucia could see, hear, and talk to Mary. Anyway, that whole set of apparitions where she, uh, Virgin Mary came to the shepherd children culminated with this huge incident where they predicted that something was going to happen with the sun and or she was going to like make the lights dance or something I can't really remember but anyway like 60,000 people showed up in 1917 which you know only a little over 100 years ago we have uh, newspapers older than that I have books older than that um so like 60,000 people showed up and something actually happened in the sky like a noticeable anom anomaly happened with the sun and it's called the miracle of the sun and so I want to dig into that phenomenon I want to dig into a you know did it happen uh, I from everything I know so far and I haven't even really researched it I would say yeah some at least something happened um, what happened and if there is a natural explanation for it how on earth did these shepherd people shepherd children these literal children know that something was like f some crazy anomaly was gonna happen in the sky before it happened you know what I mean so I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff to get into on that one. And I, uh, I, that's what I want to dig into this next week. And hopefully you will come back for that rabbit hole. Until then, stay questioning.